people were opening the windows on the other side. And I said to myself, oh, that's great. The Beatles are playing again. This is a concert. I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody. It is Chachi LaPrette. Here I am with Professor David Galan from Suffolk University. He teaches the Beatles course. Good afternoon, David. Good evening. Good morning. Uh, good all of those. Good all, uh, of, those good all of those, Chachi. Yes, and uh, we've just started a new semester. So. Well, good for you. We'll talk about that at some point. But today's podcast is brought to you by Direct Tire and Auto Service and Subaru of New England, our Beatle-loving host. These uh, sponsors, these guys truly love the Beatles, and that's why they support my radio show on WUMB and uh, our podcast here on the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com. We have a very, very special guest today. He's a sweet, sweet man. I find him mysterious in a lot of ways. I've known him for a bunch of years, but I've never really gotten to talk to him to get inside of his brain and his experiences. You're going to really enjoy this show as we talk about the rooftop concert of the Beatles. It was January 30th, 1969, and... Like any other office building on Savile Row in the financial district, it was very, you never knew, you, did, you would never know what goes on inside that building. But inside that building at 3 Savile Row was the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Only a handful of Beatle insiders were on the roof as the Beatles prepared for their, what, what turned out to be the final public performance as the Beatles and the recording of the finale of, of what should have been a television show but became the Let It Be film. And we are so lucky to have, as our guest today, a person who was on the roof, and he is, he, this guy is loaded with stories. We could go on for hours with him. He was a witness to the entire moment. And please welcome a dear friend of us all, Mr. Sean Weiss. Hello, Sean. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Like I said, I've known Sean for a number of years, but we never had the opportunity to sit down and talk to him. He goes to a lot of Beatle events, and uh, his life is such an interesting one, and it dovetailed with the Beatles, and we'll, we'll get to that. But let's start on that day, January 30th, 1969. It was a cold day in London, if I'm not sure. Was. sure. Tell us about how your day began and just bring us back to that day. Let us see what happened through the eyes of Sean Weiss. Tell us what happened. Well, you know, Chachi, it's, it's, it was amazing that it even happened for me because I had gone over to England many times, and I lived there, but due to visa problems, I would have to leave. I lived on, on Cavendish Avenue for years, and the lady that I uh, rented this apartment from or a room from um, wouldn't let me stay there anymore. And it was down the street from Paul's house. So I moved to Maida Vale. And every, you know, it was a transient apartment. So I would rent it and I would have to come back uh, to America. So in right after Christmas of uh, 68, I had come back to England because I had been home and I moved to Warrington Crescent, 25 Warrington Crescent, which is in Maida Vale, which is right. It's off a whole road and it's around the Abbey Road. Abbey Road was about a mile, maybe two miles up this long hill. And I lived next to uh, three of the Apple Scruffs, Jill, Margot, 
and Lucy. Lucy um, was an, uh, an Italian girl, and we were all Beatles fans. They were a part of the, what was called the Apple Scruffs. So I was leaving on January 26th. I had to go back home, and I was with Mal, Mal Evans, and Mel said to me, um, could you go over to John's house? And at the time, I'd do anything to go to anybody's house that had to do with the Beatles. <laughs> so I went off to John's house, and I'm sitting there, and John says to me, oh, I heard you're leaving. And I said to him, yeah, I have to go back. And he said, oh, shame, you're going to miss something. And I, you know, he didn't tell me what it was, and my ears perked up, and I said, oh, well, when is whatever I'm going to miss going to be? And he, they said, it's going to be in a, uh, hopefully within a week. So I called home and I spoke to my mom and dad and said to them, I'm not coming back for a while. They said, you, you got to come back. I said, I'll be back. So the, uh, I think it was like the 27th or 28th. I was with Mal at uh, Abbey Road and we went out to... Um, get food for George over at his Indian, did some Indian restaurant in, um, uh, off of Marble Arch on uh, Edgeware Road. And I was coming back and I said to Mel, Mel, here's what I heard. What's going on? And he says, I don't know what's going on, but can you go over to Savile Road tomorrow? So I said, yeah, I guess I can. And I did. And I walked into the rooftops and it was from the morning I got there until I left. It was magical. (laughs) It was, it was amazing. It was like, I got there about quarter to nine and there was engineers working down in the, I don't know if anybody knows it, but in the Apple on Savile Road, there was a studio in the basement. Yes. Hey, Sean, and can we hold up for a second? Can you hold up a second? Sure. Sorry, Sean, can you hear me? Just, yeah. We're getting a little sort of pitter-patter sound on your phone. I don't know if, if you're sort of inadvertently hitting it or something. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. There's some little tight It's on because it. It's probably because I'm walking back and forth. Okay. So I'll ah, sit down. Okay. It's not the worst thing in the world, but if you can, if you can avoid it. Uh, I... I yeah, I know. I know how you are, though, because I'm the same way. I walk. I I work better when I'm on, standing and walking around. Pretend you're back on the rooftop where you didn't dare move, so you wouldn't miss anything. <laughs> I couldn't move. I was frozen. There you go. Yeah, I I asked Chachi. I said, well, you know, really cold temperatures is kind of a relative term, right? Uh, you grew up in the Northeast in the U.S. I grew up in New York City. New York City, right? So January in New York, we know can be cold. Now January in London. How, you know, relatively, how cold was it? Was it like a New York January day? It was in this, I, I would say, the late, um, as the, you know, this whole thing started about, I got up on the roof about a quarter to 12. So it was late, uh, high 30s, 40s, but it was overcast. It was a very grayish day, and the sun would peak out. And so, they And they started playing, actually playing or preparing to play or tuning up uh, right around noontime? You, uh, little it was after, after, I would say it was in the, like, 
about 12, 10, 12, 15 in that time frame. Okay. Trying to sort of set the scene for our listeners about the time of day and everything like that, that it really was sort of what we might consider an extended lunchtime uh, uh, concert, you know. So, so you're well, in you're in the Apple Building, and do you see people like Peter Asher and and, uh, and let's see, the Tony Brahma was there, Peter Asher, and Ringo's uh, wife. Richard, well, the Beatles came in separately. I think the first one to come in was George, and George came in by himself, and he came with his uh, guitar, and then John showed up. Ringo came with Maureen, and Paul came by himself, and they they were all, they came in earlier in the day. They were there, and the, you know I, I the, the time it's a long so and I wasn't really looking at my watch, but I sure. would say they got there through the morning, but they came separately. And so you find yourself up on the roof. And when I found myself, uh, getting up on the roof was not something because they had laid, and I found this out afterwards, because I had never been up there previously. And so, uh, you know, they had laid this flooring out on the roof. The roof is so different now. Uh, I went back, I was fortunate enough to go back in like 2000 when I went to see Pete. I went up to London, I guess it was like 2001, and the the whole roof had changed, even the way the door was, it, it all changed, but they had laid this flooring down, and through the course of the morning, they were carrying amplifiers up, and the drums up, and there was wires. I could remember because I was going up the steps. I remember I was being told by Mel to be careful so I didn't trip. But they ran wires from the roof down into the studio where Alan Parsons and these other two guys were, engineers were. And that's how they were getting their power. So I came up with Mel and the Beatles were already on the roof. And I was very fortunate because... What I don't know if people knew this, but when they planned this out, the roof, they planned it down to the, the, to the finest details that they knew they were going to be busted. So they actually put hitting cameras so that, that Michael could film it. They had a bouquet of flowers. If you walked into, when you walked into Savile Row, you walked into like a big empty space. There was a desk in the back and there was a big picture of John from the White Album and then you go up to the steps and there was offices like, you know, Peter Brown's and and Ron Cass's and all these offices were up up on the, the top floors. But the first floor was basically empty mm-hmm. except for a secretary. I, I, I want to say her name was Debbie, but I don't really remember. Mm-hmm. She had dark hair. She was a very attractive girl. But they were planning this out. And they basically knew that the time they start playing, that people were going to start complaining. But when I, was, when I finally got up to the roof, I was pushed. If you're facing 
Savile Row and you were facing the Apple offices, I was Yoko, Maureen, and Kenny Man- Ken Mansfield yep. and were off to the right. I was on the other side where the cameramen were, and I was so cold. If it wasn't that I picked up a hoodie or, you know, like a, a windbreaker, I would have froze up there. Because when I started to go up, my coat was in the basement. At the time, I had this blue pea coat like McCartney had. I got it at a thrift stop. It's the thrift store in London. So I had, I was in the basement at the studios. So when everything started to go on, I just ran. And as I was running, I said, I don't got my coat. But Mel said, you're not going to be able to go back and they won't let you up. Because they were stopping... Even the girls who worked there, because they didn't know if it, the weight would be able to be held by all the people. So they stopped people from going up. I got up there because of Mel. Mel Evans. So. Now, let me ask you about Mal, because I've always found Mal to be an interesting guy. He devoted his life to the Beatles, even with a wife and I think a kid at home. Correct me if I'm yes. wrong. But he devoted his life to the Beatles. Certainly the story of Mal and the way he had passed was very, very sad. But tell me about Mal Evans, the gentle giant he's been called. And I find his story to be quite an interesting one. What was Mal Evans like? Well, you know, you know, guys, um, I met Mal in 1964 and I met him under very unique circumstances. It had nothing to do with Nat. My, we went over to the Plaza Hotel when the Beatles came in, in February of 1964. And on a Saturday night, we were walking on, not on the 57th Street, uh, the, uh, the 57th Street side of the uh, Plaza Hotel. We were on the, the side street where the movie theaters are, where that big, um, area with the fountain is and so we were walking on the side because we were heading home and we heard some english guys talking and right away we thought it was the beatles but it turned out to be neil and mel and we started talking to them and mel was a very sweet man so when he finally told us who he was and blah 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 and the story went on and on and we were talking and i asked him for his autograph and i asked neil for his autograph and uh, I remember Neil going to me, well, we're, no, we're just roadmen. And I said, that's all right. You know the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew what would come from that? No kidding. So after Nat started to work with the Beatles, Mel and I became very close. And I found Mel to be such a, as you stated, such a sweet man. But he was beyond. I remember once, Chachi, and at Apple, they used to have like a slush fund that people could go and take money to go and buy food or whatever. And remember, I was an American. I didn't work. Every once in a while, I would sell a Beatle photograph to a girl that would knew I was there. And they would ask me for pictures, so I'd sell them for like 10 cents each. <laughs> but at that time, the pound wasn't what it is today. Mm-hmm. So my apartment cost me eight pounds a month. 
which at the time was like 20 bucks. Wow. Now, how old were you when this was going on? This was 1969. Well, I was born in 47. So in, in 69, I was in my 20s. I was wow. 22. Great. That is great. I wasn't a young kid, but I was still not. If it wasn't for Mel, there would be a lot of times I wouldn't have eaten. I ate so much chicken cream soup. (laughs) 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 And Mel would hand me five pounds, and five pounds was a tremendous amount of money. And I remember he would, we would go over to get food, like, you know, for George and stuff. And I would love to go to Wimpy's, which was by Marble Arts. And and Mel would, uh, you know, George's food would come out to say, three pounds and Mel would say, Oh, go to Wimpy's. <laughs> and I would take the bus sometimes or Mel would drive me sometimes, but he was always a sweet man. And I found him to be what, what was the beauty of Mel to me was that it didn't matter who my father was. He never let people know that it wasn't like, Oh, this is Sean Weiss. He's Nat's son. And now I think it's a good time to tell people that Nat Weiss was a great, great man who ended up being the Beatles' American attorney. Is that do I have that correct? Yes, he he represented the fan club. He was their legal representation. What Nat did, if you got a letter from Nat, it was a cease and desist because you were doing something. Uh, that was making money off the Beatles and he protected their, their interests. I have some letters that one day, Chachi, I'll sit and show you where Nat would go after these 14, <laughs> these 14 year old little girls with these season. I represent the Beatles better than <laughs> it's really, they're really funny letters when you think of it now. And, and, um, that's what Nat did, but he also ran the fan club on 1501 Broadway up until the late sixties where Alan Klein took over the Beatles and became such a big part of the Beatles that he forced the fan club to close and Nat moved up to APCO offices and he basically didn't hate, he hated being there. So he took all the fan club stuff and threw it in the room in, in the apartment that's where the famous picture of Nat standing in front of the door. Yes. In, ni- in 1968, in May of 68, John and Paul came to New York to unveil with Neil and Mel and Magic Alex. Oh, yeah. And there's a great picture of my father sitting with them at the airport at JFK. Uh-huh. I took it. <laughs> wow. But many people claim they've taken it, but they didn't. It was you. Uh, yeah. And they were sitting there, and Mal, uh, Magic was behind. Uh, John and Paul were on either side of, of my dad, and he was in the middle. And uh, he used to wear this white hat, fedora. <laughs> yes. Uh, but um, anyway, you know, the Beatles stayed at our apartment, and we stayed at a hotel. <laughs> that's, how, that's how big the Beatles were. They couldn't come here. And it was the famous Tonight Show. Yes. So I have some very interesting photos. I don't know how many of your uh, listeners have ever seen the movie, and I'm sure a lot of them. Uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand with Eddie Deason. Oh, yes. We love that film. One of my favorites. Wendy Jo Sperber. Well, 
you know, Eddie's a good friend of mine and I love him dearly. And, and I always believed that that film was this, my life on film about going to see the Ed Sullivan show. And that'll be a story for another day. I know we want to talk about the rooftop, but (laughs) in May of 68, we were running and my father had a limousine and I opened the door to jump in the limousine. I jumped into John and Paul's and I, I, at the time I used to have a 126 Instamatic and I actually snapped pictures of them. <laughs> I opened the door and there's John and Paul and there's John sitting with his legs up and Paul and they just looked startled because the door opened. And I said, oops, I started snapping some photographs. That's funny. Unbelievable. Let's let's do get back to the roof because there's so much to talk about. But And I know that we, we don't have a hell of a lot of time, but I was speaking to Sean Weiss who was on the roof during the concert. So it's just about noontime. You're up there. You're, you're pretty cold. It's a very, very cold day. And you can see in the film footage, John is red around the nose and, and he's wearing Yoko's fur coat and Ringo's wearing Maureen's uh, raincoat. And it's pretty yeah, cold. Was, so tell it us. It was very cold. Yeah, tell us uh, about that, how that was happening. Noontime well, on the January 30th, 1969. Well, like I said, I was off to the left against the wall. Actually. There was a camera cameraman and Alan Parsons. The, in the, if you ever see a photograph and you see the guy in yellow, that's Alan Parsons. Mm-hmm. And I was standing behind the cameraman, and I was shivering. So if you see in the photograph, you see I'm actually huddled over, and I was freezing. But I don't know if your listeners knew that it wasn't just the Beatles got up there and played. I personally always believed it was an audition or uh, like to do it live because they hadn't really performed. I mean, like they did all to get, um, they did uh, Hey Jude and um, All You Need uh, Is Love. All You Need Is Love. Yeah, right. And they did that in front of studio people. Yes. And, but this was, I believed was either they were done for or they were planning to do something beyond this concert but it was many takes it wasn't like after a while uh, standing there I, I started to shiver and I was very cold but what people don't because I and I haven't seen the movie yet um, I've seen snippets over the years and somebody gave me a very poor quality of the movie that it really can't see anything but they had a lot of banter between themselves there was like Ringo, they would start a song and Ringo might have been smoking and John was making all these wise cracks and saying things that Paul and answering things to Paul. But before they ever even got up on stage where they had like a, a press room, it was a big, empty, very depressing. It had a flag on it and all pictures and there was a couch there. They gathered there and they were talking amongst themselves about songs they were going to do. I had the hope that this was just going to be a stepping stone to, uh, you know, them touring again. That's I always hoped. I asked them, I would ask them, 
George because as time went on, I became closer to George than any of them. And I would always talk with George because I would sit at Abbey Road and be like his gopher. Basically, that's what Mel had me as a gopher. It's a way for him to justify my being. And many years ago, I was going to do a book and says a fly on the wall, because that's basically what I was. I was there strictly because of who my, my father was and because of Mel. The Beatles could have cared less if I was there or not. But I was so honored to be in their presence. I mean, Chachi, you've been around Pete, and what an honor, and what a gracious man Pete is. Yes. The, the, being around the Beatles, I was in awe. And I, I want to just flip back to 1965 when I first met them at Abbey Road. Please. I walked into this, into, it was called EMI then, it wasn't called Abbey Road. And I went with Mel, and I walked up and off to the right in Abbey Road, and I don't think the sitting room is there. There was like a little phone booth, that's what I would call it. And I sat there, and I was told to wait. And I sat there, and I waited, and I heard, about 20 minutes later, I heard footsteps coming down the hall. And I knew, because there was too many footsteps, I knew it wasn't just Mel. So I got up, and I saw George, then Paul, then John, and Ringo. And they said hello to me, but it was like, hello, 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 like the Three Stooges, <laughs> and they did that the higher octave. Yes. And I stood there. And Mel introduced me to them, and I literally stood there with my mouth open, and Mel put his hand under my chin to, to get me to close it. <laughs> I just froze. <laughs> and and, and I, I finally said hello back, and they just walked out, and they went to their cars and drove away. But it was great. like, man, oh, man, what did I just do? And I'm pinching myself, and Mel just smiling at me. And that was in 1965. Yeah, it was, yep, they were recording something. And and we'll do another show about that. But to get back to that day, yes. when the roof, there was so much going on. And Lindsay Michael Hall, a hog, who set all this up, mm-hmm. had every dotted his I's and crossed his T's and planned on everything because... It was lunchtime, and they were in a very sophisticated area. Yes. It was, um, uh, you know, a lot of three suits, business, and here were these, like, to them, uh, people who were just lucky because they were musicians that made it famous, and they weren't liked. So the, what it doesn't show, it does show the police coming in, but, and they show them coming up on the roof. And I was off to the left sitting next to Billy. So I could hear what Mel was saying to them. And he was saying, oh, we're just, you know, we're going to stop and we'll play. So, and all the police really wanted them to do was lower the music. They were bopping their heads and, and you know, but they were, they were the, the police. <laughs> and they were there to stop them from playing loud. They weren't there to throw them in jail even though 
I think Paul said afterwards to me, oh, I thought I wanted to go to jail. I thought we were going to go to jail. Yeah, it would have been a great way to end the film. You know, yeah. <laughs> even Ringo said but, that too, yeah. Yeah, they they knew, or maybe it was even Ringo, it was one of them who said it. Um, they knew that they were going to get hassled because as soon as they the Beatles stepped on the roof, they locked those doors and they weren't letting anybody in. And all the, 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 the one of the greatest sights is standing on that rooftop and looking out over London and then to see the progression of people standing there and the windows opening them. And like, like they said, it was January. It was cold. People were climbing on the other sides of the roofs because these buildings were like all connected. People were opening the windows on the other side. And where I was standing, I couldn't really peek down to the, to the street until I, I tried to get over just to look out over the, the, to the top of the, you know, out onto the street. And I could see people just lined up on the other side of the, the, the road. And I said to myself, oh, that's great. The Beatles are playing again. This is a concert, but it never meant anything to me. It was just being with the Beatles at a time when they were performing. And I don't mean to sound braggish. I had been to the studio at Abbey Road and, and I've heard the Beatles and some of the songs they did before they were spruced up or engineered weren't that great. You know, but in the end, they came out to be great songs. One of the, in, in July of 69, I sat while George was, I was at Abbey Road, and I sat where George was doing Here Comes the Sun. I hated that song. Oh, my God. I hated it until I heard it, in the, and now it's one of my favorite songs. I would sit there at night to 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, Here Comes the Sun, over and over, and it was be one verse. It wouldn't be the song. When it was finally produced, I thought it was the greatest song, one of the greatest songs George ever did. And one of my favorite pieces of art was uh, West and George when they did Here Comes the Sun, those lithographs that came out through Genesis. Mm -hmm, yes. I love that. Unfortunately, they were stones. They broke into my home, but... Um, <sighs> I, I, I didn't put the, this is the last concert. I never thought of it that way. I just, I knew I had to go back to America, but I knew I was coming back to England in six or seven weeks because I finally got back in April and I stayed until September of, of 69. Hi everybody, I'm Chami Perel. Let me take a minute to tell you about the Boston Podcast Network. How would you like your own podcast? The Boston Podcast Network can produce one for you. Whether you're a lawyer, financial advisor, business owner, or really any kind of professional, you should have your voice heard through this exciting new medium. A good podcast is more powerful than traditional advertising. If a prospective client hears your podcast through their earbuds, you're already in their head, literally. Pod617.com will help you deliver a message and build relationships, clients, 
and centers of influence will delight in being a guest on your show. Go to pod617.com to start planning. And in the meantime, listen to the great shows they've already produced. The Irreverent Bitchless Bride Podcast, the hilarious show known as Shawshanked, and the wild trip through the paranormal that is Monsterland. Be part of the pod revolution. Visit pod617.com. In pod, we trust. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. You're listening to Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. I'm tickled pink that I was there. And there was a very few people. And when I refer to like being a fly on the wall, yep. a lot of these, a lot of the inner circle of the Beatles didn't know me in a sense. Like we weren't friends. I'd say hello or goodbye. Um, but I wasn't there to be anything. I was there as basically a fan who screamed and hollered because I wanted to get into the music industry. And I idolized these four guys from Liverpool. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to eat, eat with them and talk with them and, and drive in cars with them and, and go out and get autographed books so that, and give it to them so they can sign it. So I was honored. I didn't care if they asked me to shovel dirt. I would have done it. <laughs> so, Sean, you're, you're, I, you're saying that, that they didn't know the fly on the wall from a hole in the wall? No, they didn't know me as anything. They just knew me as, as, as uh, I guess, uh, the, everywhere they turned, I, was, I had a camera in my hand. Paul, uh, it's funny because in, in the early 2000 out in the Hamptons, because I lived out in the island and in Manhattan, I would go out to Paul's house out in the Hamptons and he was jogging one day and I had the, and I was taking these slides and he, he stood about 10 feet from me and he started wave waggling his finger at me, like stop. And I knew because of all the years that I would do it, that when he put his finger up to you, you were done. You better not do anything again or you would cross, he would cross you off his list and you know, the naughty or nice, you were naughty. And, and I found that as the, my time with hanging around and being, even though I would never class my, classify myself as an apple scruff, I was a fan. And I hung around with those girls out at, at Abbey Road. And I was there when George came out and sang that song to Jill. And I have fond memories of those three girls, Jill and Margot and Lucy, and they very dear to me, even though I haven't seen them in, in over almost 50 years, they still meant something to me. And I remember getting there and being very lost in England because I was there. I was, I had nobody. And these three girls basically took me under their wing as melded. And so as time went on, the rooftop, became a fading memory to me. And it wasn't until Billy Preston was at Beetlefest and I went over to see him because Neil Aspinall, Apple, sent me rooftop photographs with me in it. And it was important to me to have some kind of memory because, it, it, you know, 
I was that kid standing against the wall, even though I was 20 something years old, I had no, I wasn't, I had no way of, of, uh, documenting it. And Neil finally sent me this photograph of taken from the right side facing us. And, uh, I brought it to Billy and Billy and I are talking and, you know, I hugged him and he was at the time sick and people didn't know that. And, um, we're talking and there was these girls on the line who picked up that I had been on the rooftop. And then Billy starts saying to him, yeah, he was also on the Ed Sullivan show and <laughs> this is his father. And I'm looking, I'm going, Oh, okay. And the, after, after I left and during the course of the weekend at Beetle Fest, these girls kept talking to me about it. Oh, what was it? And I said to myself, Oh, people really cared about being on the rooftop. And then I started to realize that people did care. And then I felt even more blessed and more lucky that I happened to be one of the few that had been up there. And to this day, I've kept most of my memories to myself. And if it wasn't that Chachi had approached me, the the 30th would come and go and I would never say anything about it. So you're bringing memories back to me and it's like it happened yesterday to me. And I thank you for that. And I'm honored that people even care about what I have to say about, about being on the rooftop. But I can tell you that from the time I got up there to the time I left, I did not realize the importance of that. I just thought it was the Beatles doing something cause they did things like that like magical mystery tour it was you know it was supposed to be at some ocean liner or, or on some desert somewhere and but they didn't really want to do it and and i this might sound strange but they were arguing and john said f it i don't want to do it george says it's too cold i won't be able to play my guitar and ringo says i don't why, what's the point of doing it and the really, the only one they really wanted to do was Paul. So, you know, and then finally John just said, F it, let's go. And they all went. And what I learned that when they got in a huddle, they did what was right for the Beatles. No matter what it was and if they looked stupid or not, when they came together as a body, they were more powerful than any, any force on the face of the earth. And I saw that because you saw who was the leader. But I don't know if people knew it or not, but through the course of that, they, they, they were in their heads going, why do this? This is stupid. And in my heart, I was saying, God, are they really going to do this? And then when they did it, are they, is this a prelude to them touring again? But then as the rest of 69, when I got back to England, I saw the the bickering and the things that a true Beatle fan started to hear about and didn't want to hear about. So the what I what what I found from watching the Let It Be film because I have seen it and I have it on bootleg and certainly I have it on an anthology. It seems to me that 
no matter what was going on behind the scenes, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they were bickering and so on. But once they were playing, it seemed like the walls were broken down. Like I was watching it last night in preparation for this conversation with you, Sean. And when they're singing and John and Paul are looking at each other and they're smiling and Paul's harmonizing with John on Don't Let Me Down, it seemed like all was well once they were performing. But you're right. It seemed like Paul was leading the way and the others were kind of like, you know, I don't want to do that. But just like they went out front for taking the picture on the Abbey Road, for the Abbey Road album, they just went up to the roof and got it done. And boy, it, for you to be there to see that. But did you have any idea... Uh, certainly, it sounded like you didn't have any idea that the Beatles are on the verge of disintegration. You know what? Uh, and 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 with all honesty, Chachi, I did. I sensed it. I was close enough to feel it. I saw it in the studio. What fans didn't realize was is that once the Beatles walked past that invisible wall the fans would show up to Abbey road and Abbey road. They had that little parking lot and you walk up to that steps. Yep. Once the Beatles got into the studio, you could feel the tension. And there was days that uh, you could slice the air with a knife. That's how thick it was. Um, I think that people like Neil Aspinall and Mel Evans and uh, Jack Oliver, because what, again, your listeners don't understand is that Alan Klein was causing tremendous tension amongst the Beatles and it was divide and conquer. And I started to see people that I had cared about, maybe not have made bread with, but um, I was always appreciative that they didn't really just say, get the heck out, sure. you know? And so I started to see these people going one by one, people like Peter Asher and who probably just couldn't take the, the, the onslaught of Alan Klein was a ruthless man. Uh, my dear friend and, and Chachi's friend was Peter Bennett and you know, people were being thrust into this position of running Apple and getting their heads cut off. So um, uh, you have to understand that a lot of what was happening was turmoil, but there was a, a core of very sweet, loving people who cared for the Beatles and were holding those people together. Even like in Ken, Ken Mansfield, I just got his book and I was reading parts of it. And there was a core of them that were close to each other. I wasn't in that core. I was just the, the son of a man who was a lawyer. And I don't know if people just kept me there because of that or... Uh, they liked me, you know, I never talked about that. I was always appreciative of just being able to be somewhere that other people couldn't be. No one knew I would walk through uh, up to steps into EMI, which is now Abbey road, which was always Abbey road, but the name was EMI on above the door. Yeah. Um, and the 
kids that were walking, standing down in that parking lot, and there was hundreds, especially in the summertime, there could be 300 kids. Most of them were girls. I walked through that magic curtain where I can get inside of Abbey Road EMI and come out and girls would give me their, you know, Beatle monthlies or record albums. And I would go up to Mel and Mel would sit in this little, like I call it a phone booth and, you know, write, sign the the Beatles autographs. (laughs) But it was, it was a very interesting, it was very magical to me because I shouldn't have been there. This shouldn't have been my life, but it was my life. And I'm, I'm so blessed that I'm able to share this with people. It's, you know, I've, and Chachi knows this. I've been around the doubting Thomases, just like maybe both of you have. Mm-hmm. I don't even, I don't even listen to them anymore because just because they didn't do it doesn't mean you or I or somebody else didn't do it. So I've, I've lived through this. You know, I've heard, you know, the spoiled kid that lived off his father's coattails. I, I've heard all the stories, but you know what? In the end, I got to witness something that very few people ever did. And I thank God for it. I would never, ever, ever make money wanting to write a book or if I could give the love that the Beatles gave me and give it for free, I'd do it every day. And And I find that to be the most rewarding thing that I sit and talk to kids and some of them are 20 years old and they're big Beatle fans. Mm-hmm. And I know they look at me and say, eh, this guy's full of crap. But you know what? I know where I'm coming from. And if I can get one of them to understand what the beauty was, it, it to this day gives me chills thinking about certain times of being around the Beatles. And being so appreciative that I was there, like when Paul got married in 69, in March of 69 in New York City, and Linda lived on 81st Street in Lex, and we lived down on in the 70s. And walking up from our house, my house, with Paul and Linda, and Paul's drunk as a skunk. <laughs> he was so drunk he had his hair pushed back and he was wearing this long peacoat and he had just married Lyndon and very few people knew that, that Paul, this was actually before Paul got married, but very few people knew that Paul was going to get married. And I walked up and I walked into a horde of friends. Now what preluded the concert and what very few people knows, because I don't ever talk about her, was my weekend with Mary Hopkins. Mary came to New York to do, she was doing the prom tour in 69, in June of 69. And I was told to show Mary around, Mary and Stan. Stan was her brother-in-law. And she was staying at, a, I, think, I think at the time it was a Sheraton. It, it was on... Uh, Eighth Avenue, or no, excuse me, not the Broadway, the next street over, um, and she was staying in that hotel, but the hotel had a, um, 
like a concert hall in it, and she was doing the prom. And that Saturday afternoon, Mary and I went to explore New York. And since I knew New York, we went. We walked over to the Ed Sullivan show. And when we got to the Ed Sullivan show, I said to Mary, they're not going to let us in. She knocks on the door. They opened it. We walked in. And who did we walk into? Ed Sullivan. Oh, now listen, I'm a huge Ed Sullivan fan. I grew up on Ed and I do a great Ed imitation. So tell me about Ed (laughs) Sullivan. I love that guy. Chachi, it was so, I mean, I had never met him. Yeah, I've been to the theater uh, many times to see the Stones, the Beatles, the Doors, you name it. I saw them there. Um, But I never met the guy. And she knocked on the door and I said to her, Mary, they're never going to let us in. She said, don't worry about it. And we walked right in. And I embarrassed the hell out of her because Ed Sullivan said to her, come back tomorrow and I'll introduce you from the audience. And I'm going, oh, yeah, I'm going to be on the end. And she said, oh, no, I can't. I'm doing a prom show. So, but I go up in front of her and I go, Mr. Sullivan, can I have your one? <laughs> <laughs> and what did he do? Did he give it to you? He gave it to me. And I, uh, I, I posted it the other day on Facebook. I uh, put a little picture of him. And what's even more interesting is that afterwards we're leaving and she stops by to one of his secretaries. And I, I, I'm getting her. And so I go to where. Her, I think her name was Cherry, but I said to her, listen, do you have any of those tickets from 1964? They took mine and they wouldn't give it back to me. She goes, no, but I'll give you something better. And she goes into her file system and pulls out a letter on Ed Sullivan's stationery thanking the, the, the Beatles for tickets and they responded and she gave it to me so i have it i i think i've posted on facebook a while ago but the fact of it was is that the next day i as we were leaving i said to mary mary we you know that's ed sovin she said yeah but i can't do it i'm doing this show so i sat that night that sunday night on the in backstage looking at mary singing to all these kids that were going to their prom and the next day there was a knock on Mary's door and a friend of mine named Ronnie Kalman, who um, had a big crush on Mary, wanted to meet her. So he came up to her hotel room and then I hear another knock on the door and I go out to it and I open the door and it's all these girls from the Beatles fan club, uh, Rita, Rory, whatever their names were. And there I am opening the door to Mary Hopkins' room. And they had no understanding of why I was there. And so these are stories that I don't talk about. I, I, I only would do that because of Chachi and, and, and his show. Because I, I, Chachi is, to me, one of the most honorable people in the world. Oh, please. And... <laughs> Uh, I can make you blush, my friend. I, I tell <laughs> and you, he's done so many things for Pete, who I love dearly, Pete Best. And people who know me know my relation to Pete. But every time Pete would show up, Chachi would be there. And Chachi would support Pete. 
I, he did a wonderful interview with Rogue the other day. Mm-hmm. It really made me feel good about the museum. And I, to me, again, if it wasn't for the Beatles, I wouldn't have met people such as Dave, who I've only met at a short period of time. But if he's a friend of Chachi, he's a friend of mine. And so many wonderful Beatle people well, who might not know me. But they reach out and say hello, and I say hello back, and it's because of the Beatles, four guys from Liverpool. That's right. And listen, I'm touched by all the kind things you've said, and I think the world of you, and I've wanted to ask you to come on for a long time, but I felt uneasy because I know you're a private guy, and I was honored for you to say yes, and you're such a fine, fine gentlemen for doing this and and i have so many other things to ask out i know we're running out of time but i do want to talk about a couple of quick things and thank you for your kind words and i do i, I do want to talk about your dad uh if you don't mind uh, uh I, I might start crying <laughs> no, that's okay because i you i cry along uh, because i think he was he was a great man and recently i interviewed uh don daneman from the circle and yes. don and i had a great conversation and the circle was discovered by your dad. So yep. we're talking about Nat Weiss, a, an American attorney uh, who befriended Brian Epstein. And uh, in that course of their friendship, he discovered this band called The Circle, which that, with that great song, Red Rubber Ball. Uh, and, and so your dad was quite, quite a guy. And for Brian to take an interest and to actually hire him to work with him and become one of his closest friends that says a lot about your dad and i did want to talk about him for a moment and and uh maybe you can share some recollections of for instance i was i did a little bit of research steve forbert called your dad one of the all-time greats of the real music business the smartest person he ever met and well unbel- i wish steve- i could I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I wish I had the chance to meet or speak to your dad, Nat Weiss. But tell us about your father, your relationship, and the gifts that he brought to you and to all of us in America for the things he did. Pretty amazing man. Well, you know, Chachi, it, it, it's like I've, I've always understood how children of famous people have to live under a shadow of of like uh, Julian living under his father and Sean, but eventually you have to come out of, uh, you, you know, your father's shadow to live in your own. My father to me, who wasn't really my father. Uh, so your listeners know Nat was my stepfather. Um, and, for him to take me on and accept me is a blessing within itself. He, he was so important to what the Beatles were doing because he had the legal wearable, but he was trusted by Brian. And I remember one day, going to the Waldorf Astoria and for your listeners, Brian would stay in the Waldorf in New York, but he stayed in the towers. And I went there once with Nat and I got to meet Brian and 
I remember going up in the elevator and the Waldorf Towers is on the side, side street, and you go up in a private, it's a private entrance. It's not like going into the Waldorf itself. And I remember him sitting, Brian sitting and talking to me. And I rem- uh, this this day was so important to me because it was the first time that I was being led into a world that up until then I admired. And now I was meeting the man who had more faith in the Beatles than the Beatles had in themselves. And then when he spoke to me, he spoke to me in this very proper English manner. And I was really nervous with him. And I remember my father putting his hand on my shoulder, like, cause he, I started to quiver and shake because I was in the presence of the man who founded the Beatles and I was awestruck. And many years later, I became, I met, uh, uh, just, just jump. I met Billy through my dad, Billy J. Kramer. And I remember many years later asking Billy about, um, uh, a meeting he had in New York with Brian and Sid Bernstein in 63 where Billy was going to be, if the Beatles, for whatever didn't work, Billy was going to be the, like the stand-in for the, the, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And people, my father was so respected by people like Billy and James Taylor. And there's many stories of how James Taylor got out of his, contract because Peter Asher went to Nat and asked Nat to get him out of his contract with Apple because Peter had another with CBS and there's so many other stories and the 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 most touching thing for me was I don't want to mention the other Beatles radio show because in New York breakfast with the Beatles uh, your show didn't come into New York. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting, must have been in the early 2000s, or maybe the latter part of the 2000s, and listening to a, a Beatles radio show with, mm-hmm. with my dad. And he started to cry. And I said to him, What's the matter, Dad? And I, I thought he was reminiscing about, you know, one, a loved one or something. And he told me about a story. And Chachi, I started to cry. He told me about he went to see Brian. He was in a hospital, and he was sitting with Brian. And then John showed up, and John brought a bouquet of flowers to give and with a little note and it said, get your ass out. We need you. And I, when that was explaining to it, he explaining it to me, I could feel the love he had for Brian and I could feel how he missed him. Cause the story of the radio announcer was talking about Brian and you know, how Brian was unsure 
of what was going to happen with what people don't know is before Brian died, his contract was almost up with the Beatles. Right. He was very insecure. Yes. Matter of fact, I don't know if people knew this, but Brian did not want Sergeant Peppers to come out. So he wrote Nat a letter asking him not to put the album out prior to uh, Sergeant Peppers ever coming out. And my father just ignored it. And Sergeant, and then Sergeant Pepper became Sergeant Pepper. But there's a video you can go to YouTube where my dad actually physically talks about this letter Brian sent them. And as good of man as he was and how respected he was like people like Steve, what people don't know is that Brian and my father formed a record label called Nempia Records. Yes. And Nempia Records had a hit with a band called The Romantics, which I'm very good friends with, and I loved them dearly. And again, Stanley Clark, and it was eventually engulfed by Columbia, but because of his, the people, his artists that my father worked with, like Don and the Circle, yeah, and the Circle, I saw them on the '66 tour. I was very lucky. Um, I didn't, you know, you say well and you move on. Um, Chachi got to interview Don, and since then Don and I have communicated. But I had lost contact with them, and uh, I finally recontacted because I'm trying to stay close with people who loved my dad because he's not here anymore, and uh, I. I can only say that, you know, he, there's a song and I'm going to bust up crying now, but there's a song by Paul Peterson called my dad. And I've always, and I saw Paul many, many years later and I went up to him and I just hugged him. And I said, that song touches me every time I hear it to this day. And I'm I'll be 72 in March. I cry because those words are so potent to me that one of the verses go, there was a man, there's no other man who I can call my dad and not being born and not being his real, you know, but his blood son. I'm so lucky that I became a part of his life. Forget the Beatles because the Beatles were a part of his life and I was lucky enough to coattail that. But the love that my father would show anybody, especially Beatle fans, he never would write a book. He would never betray their, their words or their betray them whatsoever. He loved them because Brian knew they were going to be the greatest thing on earth. I think there's a, some saying, and, and I could be wrong, and I might not be quoting it properly, but it says that people who love the Beatles 
50 years from now. And it's so true. And Brian and my father had a relationship that was extraordinary. And it's been written about and there's no, you know, you, you can't hide the truth. But the fact of it is, is that give me one day with somebody like my father and I could die the next day because I would have had the most fulfilled day of my life. Oh. Be with him as a person. I'm sorry. No, I please. I get very emotional about him, and and I miss him every day. He's he's in my heart, and any person who knew the Beatles, he wasn't flamboyant. He wasn't. He never put his foot out, and people didn't know him, but he shaped my life, and my life is now ending soon you know whenever the Lord takes me my life's gone but I got to live 50 years with people that Nat respected and they respected him I've never heard one person well that's not true I've heard one person say something that I I, I dislike but I've never heard one bad thing about my father whatsoever. He was always honest with his his clients, with the people he represented, and with Beatle fans. If he couldn't do something, you weren't getting a plastic BS story. He told you no. And that's how he treated us. He talked to us. He told us what was. And... He said something to me many, many years ago, and to this day I take it to heart, and that's probably why I don't talk about it, because I always feel, I think people think it's bragging, and it isn't. Um, But he said to me, you have to understand that people, and this was in the height of the Beatles' fame. He said to me, Sean, people you have to be careful with because they're going to accept you for who you know, not for who you are. You got to be with people who respect you for who you are, not for who you know. And I've kept that all my life. And that's why to this day, I think the friends that I've created through these years, there's no animosity. I don't use them for things. I do things because I want to. There's no money that trans gets in between us. I respect them. But when it came to John, Paul, George, Ringo, and P, I cared for them, and I care for them, and I would do anything to keep perpetuating the greatness that these guys created. Pete is a, you know, he could probably be a footnote in history. But the man was as talented as Ringo was. The Beatles were, to me, John, Paul, and George. You could have put anybody as the drummer. But in the the realm of the truth is that Pete didn't fit. Everybody knew that. The Beatles knew that. And Ringo fit. He was the, the piece of the puzzle that fit. I respect Ringo. But I put more respect on Pete because Pete's lived under the thumbprint 
of being a loser, and he's far from it. He's the most honest person, the most loyal person that you'll ever meet. Still married to Kathy for since 1962, and he deserves to be known as a Beatle. And these are the people that, because of my dad, I was able to become friends with, and I, I, I can't thank him enough. And when he was here, he knew how much I, I thanked him because I could say it every day. And as time went on, Nat became a footnote and his friends walked away. But Peter Asher invited him to see him perform. I think it was at Feinstein's. It was a supper club in New York. Mm -hmm. And Nat went with his walker. Mm. And Peter Asher has always kept in touch with my father. Not, I didn't know that. And when Nat went with Liza Minnelli to Feinstein's to see Peter Asher, which was a couple months before he passed, I, I realized the respect that many, many people in Apple had for him. People like Steve. I've never met Steve. I've spoken, you know, to... I haven't met many of the people that my father had as secondary, like Stanley Clark. I met the romantics, but through friends, Steve Fulbert has, Steve has sent me, you know, thank yous. And he wrote a, a great, um, tribute to, to my father, but I haven't seen him. He's, uh, he did a book and he's on tour and I'm going to hopefully link up with him. Just like I want to link up with the circle because these were people that Nat respected or he would have never, ever, ever wanted to work with them. If Nat didn't respect you, he wouldn't work with you. Well, I had read many times that Nat was a man of his word and he helped out many, many people. And just by chance, what he did for the circle was a testament to the kind of guy your dad was. He made a commitment to Don. He said he'd bring him to Brian, and he did. And look what happened to the circle. So I've read nothing but great things about your dad. God bless him, and God bless your mom, too. And just hearing these stories and, and how you feel about your dad, it's just, it's, it, it, it gives me shivers. And I can't tell you how appreciative I am to have you here today because we do appreciate everything that you do. And I've seen you at my events, at Beatle events, and how you talk to the kids. And they feel blessed and honored to, to meet you. And the way you treat them is a testament to how your dad you know, brought you up because that's what your dad would do. And so, well, I thank you for that, George. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I, I want to say this. And you know my better half, Terry. Yes, and, love Terry. Um, and, uh, and if it wasn't for, again, uh, the Beatle connection of Pete, I would have never met you. And, and because of you, I got to meet Dave, even though it was as short as it was. But I've gotten to meet many, many people over the years that had no idea my connection to the Beatles. And 
as you said before, uh, it's not that I'm private because once I start talking, I'll talk forever. But it's that it's hard for me to share things that I get, I can get very emotional over. The rooftop was very emotional to me, and but it's not as emotional as emotional to me as like John's passing and George's passing and. And and my father's passing because and Brian, even though I, at the time I had only met Brian three or four times, but the fact of it was is that literally these four guys have stayed with me since 1964, and I think about many things. And then they come and go. But to me, the Beatles are every day. I walk into my home and and it's like I'm walking into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Because I can turn around and read something that my father wrote to this person or read something that John wrote and feel their presence around me. So that's why I keep it. I could take this stuff and uh, this memorabilia and sell it, but then I would lose the essence of the presence of the love that these people give me. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm not a seller. I, I rather give somebody something and let them appreciate it than to sell them to get a, a, a dollar or something. I, that's not, that was never me. And I would be spitting on the graves of people that I respected by ever doing that. So I don't do it. Um, and I, I wish I could give everybody the right to walk into my home, but I know I can't do that. Mm -hmm. So what I've been doing and I'm Chachi and I are friends on Facebook and I show my world to them through the eyes of Facebook. And I get, some attacks on it because people think I'm, I'm bragging or um, I'm kicking sand in their face. I'm not, I'm trying to share the love of four guys with people that weren't as lucky as I was or weren't as blessed as I was. And I don't know any other medium or any other way to share that with them. I can't invite, I have uh, 5,000 friends on Facebook. I can't invite six of them into my house. It's mm-hmm. big enough. Well, so I, I use the avenue that is out there to me, and that's Facebook. And it isn't to offend people, and it isn't to make people think I'm an idiot, because I'm not. I'm a sensitive person who cares about four guys, and I want to share that with the world, but I can't. So I do it in, in, in a... Uh, a, a light that people don't get offended and, yeah. or don't uh, can see things that they've never seen before. Like I have the radio that Paul used in the first Maisel film. Oh, uh, uh, I know. He's, he's got the that pep- radio. He has it. I know. He's got the Pepsi he has it. And I, I, I will tell you, Sean, the gifts that you give to everyone on Facebook by sending those photographs out, I look at them and I am astounded and I feel blessed to see this stuff that otherwise no one would ever see. So for someone to think that you're being a braggart by by showing this stuff, they are just dead wrong because you are sharing gifts 
to everyone. Well, I mean, it's just an amazing uh, display, an amazing collection of history, and I love looking at every one of these. The other day, you put a picture up of Paul and Donovan, and you captioned it, I took this photograph, and I sit there, I go, oh my God, he took this picture of Donovan and Paul McCartney. And you know, Mr. Weiss, your, your, your last story, I have, to, I have to tell you how meaningful that is to me. For years, Chachi has, has come to my class, and he has displayed some of his memorabilia, and my students, we will, as, a, as, a, as an important learning tool and text, watch the Maisel's Brothers film, uh, and specifically those scenes where Paul is carrying around the Pepsi vending machine radio, and Chachi will have one from that era, and he'll always make a point of saying, well, it's not the one you've seen in the film. But now that I know you actually have that one, this is quite a moment for me. From Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Two From The Road, featuring comedian Gary Marino and Boston rock legend John Butcher. The podcast which exposes the gospel truth about life on the road, down the road, between the roads, under the roads, right, Gary? Oh, absolutely. We're not holding back there. Guests include the biggest of big shots from the music and comedy scene. Two From The Road. Make sure to check for new episodes posted at Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. In pod, we trust. His Facebook feed is phenomenal, and I was blessed when he, he accepted me to, to view this stuff because the things that I've seen, I'm like, oh, I'm flabbergasted by the, the, the things that you have, Sean. Amazing. Well, you know, it's, it's over the years, and you, you, you get things that mean something to you. And when, when going back to Abbey Road and, and the, the rooftop in Apple, I took certain little things, you know, that, that meant, you know, like I would take a, um, an Apple piece of paper, you know, stationary. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and w- I, one year and I've given it and it's a shame. I gave it away to my friend, Brian. Um, I had the synopsis for hard day's night, but on the back of it, <laughs> it was doodling of George. Oh. And, and I gave it, I gave it to my friend, Brian, who's a, a dear friend of mine. And, and, um, uh, I've given things that meant some, something to people because I have probably 30 foot lockers filled with memorabilia and it doesn't do anybody anything sitting in a basement or sitting in a storage unit that if they can't appreciate. So what I've been doing lately and, and Chachi can attest to this is mm-hmm. that I've, started to show it on Facebook and uh, it's so much easier for me to show people these things and I get contacted daily to want to sell it and I don't want to sell it. I want to be able to let people appreciate it, but I don't want to sell it because Every little piece, Terry laughs at me all the time because I can go to a Foot Locker and tell her what's in it, and it's been in there for 40 years. <laughs> and you know, uh, so Dave. I have a great archival system, it's just retrieving it, is, is mine. Terry tells me all the time, she says to me, Who knows that this is uh, what this picture is from? But I can describe 
the picture and the day because I did it. And you know, I, I'm, I go back to that Donovan picture. Yes. I gave that picture to Donovan. When I, when I saw Don at Beagle Fest, he had never seen them. And there was more than one. So I, I walked and gave it to him. And as I was standing online, cause I made a bunch of copies, I started to hand those pictures out to people. And my biggest mistake was, is that I don't really watermark anything. And I started to now, and I've seen that photograph on other Beatles sites. That's what the comment was, is that I'm proud to say I took it. I know when I took it and I know where I took it. And, and I'm, uh, but I'm also proud that people would want to steal that. We know, we all know Bob Gruen. Yes. And and Bob Gruen, I went to see Bob um, and Yoko down in the village a couple of years ago. And I was talking to Bob and, and um, in 2005, we did a show at Randall's Island. Pete did. And um, it was with, for a little Stevie and we played with Bo Diddley, Pete did, and uh, the New York Dolls and all these bands. And I had a picture I took of the guy, Ed Burns and Bob Gruen because Bob was there and we were talking and I, you know, up until then I was uptight because people were posting these photographs that were mine. But over the years I had given them to people and then, you know, then the story changes. So I don't really care. I'm honored, but I wish they would just give me credit and, you know, Oh, this was taken by Sean and he gave it to me, but they don't, they say, Oh, I took this. So I, that was that comment. But, um, Bob said, you should be honored that people like your photograph enough to steal it. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was, I thought that was great because I then realized that his photograph is the most iconic photograph in the world. Sure is. And, the New York City t-shirt. It's knocked off. People steal it. <laughs> I tell you, I've seen that picture, the one where he's wearing the t-shirt, the New York City right. t-shirt. That picture's on t-shirts. It's everywhere. And right. I wonder if Bob gets a piece of that action. Probably not, because everyone has taken that picture to use it on their own. Well... You know, when we talk about photographs, I was fortunate enough to be at the Revolver press conference in the 60s. And I bestowed one of them, and I don't bestow them to anybody <laughs> a lot lately, but I gave Chachi one yes. that yes. was stolen. Uh, it wasn't stolen. Uh, she knocked it off. And she used it on finding Paul McCartney. <laughs> so I called the I called the DVD company to say, you know, at least you could give me credit. But she cropped it so much where it was just a reporter and Paul. Uh, but yes. I have a set of those photographs. But I gave I gave Chachi one. But That's right. I, th- th- that was again. It's you know, do you stamp your feet and screen? Or is it like what Paul said to me once? He was in Italy, and this was right. It happened right before he made a stink about the Lennon and McCartney named composer, the way it's oh, written. Yes, that's right. And uh, we were talking, and um, we I w- it was at the garden, and we were talking backstage, and Paul was. I was asking him, you know, why he was wanting to change you know, be McCartney and Lennon. And he was saying that, um, 
he was in Italy with his children and he wanted to show his children. They were small and he walked into a museum and it said, yesterday, John Lennon. His name wasn't even on it. And he got really, you know, he was kind of upset that, and then when you think about it from a, um, a royalty, you know, writing credits, if you're really, your name's left off, are you being paid the royalties? And I'm sure Paul doesn't care, but he's still worth, you know, he has more money than he, him and his family will ever spend. Mm-hmm. But he wrote that song. Yeah, they shared the credits, but Paul wrote it and have his name on it, even on it. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yep. So, Sean, we've had you for an hour and a half now, but I do want. A oh, co- so I want no, 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 no. We love it. I believe me. I'd stay on for hours, but I before we wrap up, a couple of things. How did you feel about the loss of Mal Evans? I've always, I've always loved Mal Evans for the things he did for the band, for the sacrifices he made, and for him to pass that way was just awful. And I don't want to bring up any more negative stories of your friends, but uh, sad stories, I should say. But it was sad the way he passed away. It was a great loss. It was, and and um, when I found out Mel moved to California. Um, I had reached out through his wife and, uh, she said he would get in contact with me and then, um, he never did, unfortunately. And I remember talking to John about him, uh, when I was, John was with David Peel in the village and I asked John if he had, um, spoken with Mal. And he said, no, he hadn't spoken to him either. And then when I got the news that Mel was shot, when, which was ironic because I have a poem that um, one of the few things that I was given to by Mel. And I, a friend of, uh, well, he's a, a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Wayne. Uh, and he put it to music and I should reach out to him so that you can get a copy of this song. And I sent him Mel's words and he put it to music and I sent it to Mel's wife. And again, she never responded back, but the, uh, the, the poem was really beautiful and Mel didn't think it had any worth to it whatsoever. And it was such a beautiful poem, and he he thought it was bad. And I said to him, he was getting ready to throw it out, and I said to him, Mel, can I have this? He said, oh, you wouldn't really want this. And then Wayne put it to music, and somewhere in my basement I have the copy of it, but I will contact Wayne and have him send it to you, Chachi, because it it's, was Mel's words that, he, that and Wayne did the music for but to Mel was, you know, the, and and everybody's used this. He was very gentle, but he was very burly, and he was big, and he used to walk around with that cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he had a beard. <laughs> and I would say, "Oh, Mel, your cig- your beard's been kept on fire." <laughs> but uh, he was a good man, and and I miss him dearly, and unfortunately. Um, 
as with all things, you know, when your life ends, people seem to want to forget you. But um, I, I hope people remember Mel for as long as I remember the Beatles and and people like Neil. Um, and I get I get the pleasure of knowing Neil through Rogue and Pete, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, I was very honored, even though I had met Neil many times, um, many, many years ago for the uh, concert for Bangladesh, Pete Bennett, me and Terry went down to the IFC theater in Manhattan and Neil and Geoff and, um, uh, Hillary Gerard, which I don't know if people know Hillary. Hillary is a very close friend of Ringo's. And if you look at, um, even some of Ringo's lyrics, it, it talks about Hillary. Um, and, uh, Neil was there and Terry and I took photographs with him and I got to talk to him. We reminisced about the, this, you know, the sixties and, and then knowing that he's, I'm working with his son and his, uh, and is one of his dear friends and getting to know Neil and know Neil through his family was a blessing because Neil was through all Beatle history, who was the only person that was ever there through the beginning to the end. That's right. He was. And Neil never once betrayed he didn't put out a, a you know a, a book that he he loved those guys, and when you talk to Neil, you couldn't help but be mesmerized by his intellect and his knowledge and his kindness, just like his son Rogue and and Pete you can understand their philosophy because the Beatles were as much Neil as Neil was the Beatles. And they, they, you know, these guys all huddled together, drove around together. And Pete was a part of that. So when you're one-on-one with these people, you're in awe because you're with people that you idolize or, or with people that work with people you idolize and you talk to them as human beings and and they tell you things and you, you know it, it, it chachi listen the amazing thing is is that people like marco Peters, who perpetuates the beatles through beetle fest yes. has brought the the kids my grandchildren my grandson to understand who the Beatles still are. So the perpetuation of these four guys is bringing love to people like your friend, Peter, who you're right. Mesmerized me for the five minutes. I stood with him buying those CDs and he was so knowledgeable, more knowledgeable than I was. I might have a personal knowledge, but not a musical knowledge like this, like Peter. He impressed me, but what's that from? It's from people like you and people like Marco Peters and anybody who writes a book and and the the younger generations get their hands on it and they read it and they absorb something. Yeah, a lot of it's going to be an exaggeration or it's them expressing their way they saw it. 
But the fact of it is, is that they still get to read and love a band that I loved 55 years ago. I, I scratch my head every day and say, why are the Beatles so big? Why to this day can Paul McCartney walk into a venue of 80,000 people and sell it out? It's because he has, he's so loved. The Beatles are so loved and they stood on love as my father did, as Brian did, as Alistair Taylor did, as Derek Taylor did, as Tony Bromwell did, as Peter Asher does, as anybody that was around these guys. If you didn't, you didn't come to them with arms open and being honest and loving and truthful, you got pushed out. You know, there's, a, there's an old saying that the inner circle once you stepped out of it, you never got been mm-hmm. got back in. Yep. And that's out of the respect and the love that they gave you and you stepped on and you, for whatever reason, you didn't give it back and they knew it. So they knew you weren't coming from an honest place. They knew you weren't coming from a truthful place and they knew you weren't coming for on their behalf. They knew that, and so they would just, once you're out, you're out. You weren't getting back in. And I don't know if that's a scouser thing, because that's how Pete is. That's uh, the, the, the Pete Best band, who I know very well. That's how they are. Once you betray them, you can't get back in their, their graces. They're done. Well, that's what and, I was going to say, the B word. Once you be, you're betrayed... You're done, and and, yep. and a lot of people, you know, feel that way. But what the Beatles did for us, for you, and for me, they changed the my life at seven years old, and that's why I became a DJ because I knew I couldn't be a Beatle, but I wanted to speak to to, to meet them, and that's how I did by becoming a DJ. And they said, no matter what you do in in your life, if you're a sound guy, a cameraman, a fashion, I mean, you were influenced by this band. And uh, their gifts to us are just numerous, well, and here we are, fifty plus years later. Jaji, you 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 know Neil as well as I do, Neil Glazier. Yes. And there's a man who had no contact with the Beatles, and then because he's a sincere straight shooter, he hooked up with Ringo. And now he's able to take Ringo's art and spread it around the world because of his love for the Beatles and then his connection. It's like with you and you reach out every week to people you don't know, you don't see. You very rarely can speak to us, the ones who reach out to you. But yet you're perpetuating the love of a band that you respect and cared for and loved. And now you're blessing as many listeners as you have. And there's probably thousands and hundreds of thousands. I don't know because I don't know your demographic. But I do know that when I speak to people about the Beatles and I meet somebody like that kid, your friend Peter. I don't mean to call him a kid, your friend Peter. I'm honored to talk to him because... I know that I might tell him one thing that would perpetuate 
him staying a Beatles fan. And I, I, I walk away from that meeting with the, your friend Peter, and I was, and I know I'm being redundant, but I was so impressed <laughs> that a 12-year-old had knowledge that surpassed anything I knew, <laughs> and 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 he articulate and was able to keep me focused on you know a lot of twelve year olds you, yeah 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 and you're moving on he kept me there he was I talked to him about something and he came right back with positive constructive things some things I didn't even know. But yet, and and you know it, uh, Chacha, you talk to him uh, much more than I ever have. But for the five minutes that you introduced me to him, most pleasant child that I ever met. And what was even more better, he was a Beatles fan. <laughs> so I could sit and talk with him for hours. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing the kids today and that, that they're, yep. they're living this... They're each living their life with the Beatles as if we did, you know, when we did, because we're first generation Beatles fans. And here they are, what, fifth, sixth, seventh generation fans. And and they know more about the Beatles than we do. And Peter is a very intellectual 12 year old. That's why <laughs> I really wanted you to meet him because he's very special. And when he hears this, he's going to be very happy. But I will tell you, every week I do my show, I'm always on social media while the show's on the air. And he's always communicating. He's up at 6 a.m. Uh, to hear the show every weekend, and if he misses it on a Saturday, he listens on Sunday. And what a smart child! And he's not the only one. There's a lot out there, and and for you to take a moment to talk to him, I really, really appreciated that. Well, I was honored too. You know, but uh, I want to say a couple of things. I don't know if your listeners did about the rooftops and sure. pictures about the top. Please, I stood there when Alan Parsons was wrapping the microphones with pantyhose but what was more interesting <laughs> alan ran out with uh, another person I, I don't know who that was but they what it must have been like when alan parsons walked into a woman's hosiery and asked for <laughs> pantyhose <laughs> what size sir <laughs> and one other thing is that Fender, and I put this, these were like little hint questions I put on, on my Facebook page. I asked people to answer. But I don't know if your listeners knew that Fender actually made a custom guitar for George. And George unveiled it, the Rosewood, on, on the rooftop. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's good to know. I never knew that. That's fantastic. Yep. Uh, um it was made custom for George. It was brought there, and it, that became that rosewood guitar. But that was first unveiled on the rooftop. And there's another person that, again, I've gotten his book. He sent it to me, and I haven't seen him since 1970. was Kevin Harrington. And Kevin, if you don't know the name, Kevin was the red hair kid. Um, that was holding up the lyrics for John. Oh, yes, that's but right. Kevin was like John's assistant, uh, not really his assistant, but his gopher yeah. in, at Apple. And again, you see, 
you see this red here kid walking on his back, and that that's Kevin Harrington. And I haven't thought about Kevin for probably since he sent me his book years ago. And again, talking about tonight about the rooftop, all these names are starting to come back to me. And, and they, these are people that I think about. And then you don't think about them because they, 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 there's not nothing that relates to them. It's like Jill and Margot and Lucy. And they're three apple scruffs that I was there when George put, George used to have a white Mercedes and I he probably had it. This was 69. And, and I was, and I'm not saying that's the year that the Apple scruff came out, but George had this white Mercedes and this was in 69, but I was there when George pulled up in his car and I think it was, um, a Ferrari and it, it was a two seater. And I remember Twiggy, Eric Clapton and Justin, which I think at the time was Twiggy's boyfriend pulling up with a brand new yellow Ferrari. And they want to show George. And there used to be on the side of that. If you went down the EMI, there was a garage. You could go down this, like path or driveway down to this garage right and they pulled up and I George came out and all of a sudden you see this yellow Ferrari starting to back up and it went right along the side of the wall which was destroying it and it was like nothing but um, Jill Lucy Riga went on to work for handmade films and Lucy was George was her favorite. So, and George would stop his car. And if Lucy was there, he'd stop, get out, hug her, talk to her, sign autographs. And then she'd get in the, the car with them and they drive away. And then George may let her work for him. Margot, Margot was an artist and uh, one year and then, and then Margot, if you listen to this, I apologize. She did a, a drawing of Paul, but she never wanted to see him, him to see it. And she was the kind of artist that did stuff, but would hide it. And she showed it to me once. And I said, you know, Margot, this is beautiful. Did you give this to Paul? She said, I, no, I never do that. Well, I took it from her and gave it to him. Well, I wasn't going to give it to him. I was going to show it to him. And he said, oh, can I have it? And I said, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so he took it. And Margot got very upset with me. She said, why would you do that? And I said, I said, Margot, listen, he appreciated it. He took it. And he loved it. And But, but you know, we had a couple words. And... For if you see McCartney when he got married, there's a girl with blonde hair and she has like this pea coat on. Yeah. That's Margot. And Jill was, and they all lived, they lived next door to me on Warrington Crescent. And they're the ones who got me the apartment. So those girls meant so much to me. They were such a big part of my life. But they didn't know anything about that. 
they knew nothing about who I was. They just thought that my name was Sean and I was a friend of Mel's and they had no inkling of, of the connection that I had. They couldn't understand how I could walk into EMI, but they never asked me. And so since uh, talking about the rooftop, all these people are starting to come back to my head. Now my head's swelling with, <laughs> wonder what happened with her, and wonder what happened to Jill, and I wonder what happened to this person. And I had another friend, Denise, and I loved her. And you remember, I was 22, but she was probably 16. But she's in the Hey Jew video. And she's standing next to Ringo, and she's clapping, and she's got blondish hair. But her name was Denise. And, and I remember having to go back to, to uh, um, the United States. And in the end of uh, September of 69, I had to come home. And I remember her sending me all these photographs. And then I knew she was going to the Hey Jude show, the, you know, the performance. And she asked me to come, but I couldn't. And then there she is. I was the other day, I was watching TV with my, uh, with Brady Chachi, who says hello. And there she is standing there dancing and I'm going, wow, oh, that's Denise. And, <laughs> you know, it, it's these memories that keep popping up with people that you, you know, like a ship in the night, you, you meet them and you're friends with them for a period of time. But the only thing that you ever really had in common were the Beatles. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what happened. And then when you contacted me and I started to think about it because it is 50 years ago. Right. And it will be 50 years ago on Wednesday. Yes. So, you know, my memory, you know, is 50 years old now. <laughs> and some point, I think I know exactly what it was. And yeah, I can remember that. Like it happened yesterday. And then when you start thinking about it, again, it's from my perspective and, and the way I saw it. Yeah, being there was great. But remembering everything wasn't something that I captured. You know, there were certain parts that I would capture. Mm -hmm. And th that's why to this day, I've never seen the Ed Sullivan show on video because I don't want to see it. I never saw any of the, you know, the footage that came from any Beatles concert that I was at because I was there. So it's not that I don't want to see it, but... I I want to remember it the way why, like, why I was living it. So when, when uh, people ask me, well, what was it like to be at the Ed Sullivan show? I said, you know what? I got there. I told them the whole story about how it happened. And then I got there and I got mesmerized. So I sat up in the third balcony in the last row of the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th, 1964. Wow. And I couldn't tell you one song, but I'll tell you what Ed Sullivan was doing on the up to the stage <laughs> and the two little uh, TVs that they had set up. And, okay, kids, we're going to bring them out in the second part of the show. I can tell you all that, but don't ask me well, what the song. I stood there with my mouth open. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, it was a whole different thing. And it's it's amazing that, Today, everything's documented. You you drive your car and you put your cell phone on and you can talk. Not in the 60s. Nope. 
you know, we, you know, my dad, when I would go out in the morning, he would hand me a dime and say to me, if there's any problems, call me. I had no cell phone. <laughs> there was a phone booth on every corner. That's right. So it's amazing that, that people care so much that somebody like me can express their their thoughts of being there and people will listen to it and and I thank you all for that and I thank you Chachi and Dave for even having me um I I'm honored I I I'm very honored that uh we're friends Chachi and, and Dave I hope to be friends and I hope one day you invite me to your class I'd love to come and show stuff and talk to them and bring um, that bring that radio <laughs> I will bring the radio and a bunch of other stuff I can bring in, like uh, letters and, and stuff that they could really see. I'll photostat them so that they don't ruin the real ones. But um, I love the fact that sharing of the Beatles is something that 50 years later I can do because since 1964, the Beatles have been the one and only thing that's stayed with me for this long. And that's more than three quarters of my life. And I am so blessed to have been, had I just been with them one time, I would be blessed. I'm so blessed because I had the privilege of being around them for more than one time. And a lot of the people that that they cared about, I've been blessed to to be around. And all those people, from Tony Bromwell to Sam Leach, rest his soul, to George Martin, to uh, Derek Taylor, to Jack Oliver, to Peter Bennett, to Neil, uh, to Chris O'Dell, who. I love Chris. I haven't seen in probably 50 years. And uh, I know she does Beetlefest, but I don't go and bother her because she probably doesn't remember me because I wasn't that, I was the fly on the wall. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but the fact of it is, is that these are people that at one time we shared a precious moment and then, you know, life goes on. Um, Frida Kelly, um, Denise, uh, Rita, these are girls I used to work with, Nat, at the, uh, uh, many, Armand, um, just on and on and on, people that you meet and then you move on. But then special people stay with you because you invest more than that five minutes with mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And um, people like that you share bread with and you pick up the phone and you call and you talk to and Chachi and I text a lot. We don't might not talk a lot mm-hmm. on the phone, but we will we'll get in. It's like my misspelling <laughs> and Chachi replying and we're <laughs> texting and and it's all because of four guys and I know I'm being redundant and, no, and I did no. and I'm getting long winded, but I thank your listeners for taking the time out of their life to listen to me discuss my 
time with the Beatles. I thank Chachi. I thank Dave. I appreciate the radio show. I appreciate uh, the the fans of the Beatles. I I wish 99.9% could have met my father because they would feel the same way about him as I do. Um, And um, if you have anything else, I'll be happy to answer. Otherwise, I... Thank you for having me. Well, Sean, I will tell you, it's it's a blessing for, for you to be on our program. I'm blessed to know you. I, I You are such a great friend. And the, the gifts that you bring, you've lived multiple lifetimes in the life of Beatle fan. And sharing your stories, I feel very, very blessed to have you on. I wish I could have met your dad and your mom. I mean amazing people and you're an amazing person and please send my love to terry and to brady and i do want to tell everybody one of the greatest albums ever recorded and it should have it should have been nominated and won grammys is Heyman's green by pete by pete best that is just a phenomenal album and uh the blessings that all these people have brought into our lives and you well, you include it was nominated it was on the list for the Grammys. right right but it, it, it unfortunately never made the cut. Right. And uh, I, I haven't spoken to Rogue, and I'm, this is just, you know, Rogue answering people's questions, but I think Heyman's Green is going to be reissued with more cuts on it. And I, you know, that was a labor of love, and, and that all came about by the genius of Rogue. But what people believe or don't believe is that Pete played on every track of that album and that's a damn good album and uh, you're right from your lips to God's ears that should have been nominated Haynes Green should have been nominated for a Grammy and it, it, it far surpasses anything anybody ever thought Pete could accomplish it was an album that it was original. It was very Beatleish. It was, but it was Pete, and it wasn't anything that people would have ever expected coming from him. And and kudos to him. And I um, I just want to correct myself: is that it isn't Lindsay Michael Hogg? It's Michael Lindsay Hogg. Yes. <laughs> and I, I just thought I'm saying, who the hell was Lindsay? And then I'm saying, <laughs> well, Sean. But, uh, and 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 you know, Michael, I'm sorry. I I said your name backwards, and please put my name on the video. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, we've all gotten older, and uh, <laughs> it's not yeah. a problem, Sean. But listen, thank also, you. Also, spell it Weiss W E I S S when you send my check for my. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time and sharing these memories. We could go on for hours because there's so many things that you've experienced that we haven't discussed. And for you to open up just just for this short period of time, I cannot thank you enough. And we are thrilled and blessed to have you here and to have you locally in our area. And God bless your dad and God bless your mom. And uh, my best and my love to Terry and to Brady. And boy, we can't thank you enough. What a thrilling two hours it's been. The time has just flown oh, by. I told you, minute one, I can. I'm long winded. Not so a pr- you're going to have to edit this so that we're not it editing it. No, no, no. I'm going to urge our producer and uh, spiritual leader here, David, 
to print as it is and get it out there. But I just enjoyed every moment, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. We can't. Thanks, David. Thank you. God bless you. And, and Beatle people, love is all you need. That's right, my friend. God bless you, Sean. Have a great night. We'll talk soon. Get back, Jojo. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.